Hello, I'm Patricia. This is Sound News broadcasting from the Old Man Studio in Church Street, Portadown. And please note a magazine follows this recording. This production is for weekending Saturday the 23rd of April. On behalf of everyone here on the Craigavon Talking Newspaper team, welcome to this week's programme. The stories making the headlines this week are from the Portadown Times, Call on GPs to Rethink Call First System, and from the Lurgan Mail, Council to Assess Impact of Planned Strike Action. Now it's over to Ken, who brings you our first story. Call on GPs to Rethink Phone First Call System. Upper Van MP Carla Lockhart has urged doctors to rethink their decision to retain the phone first system for GP surgeries amid deep concern from the public about accessing healthcare. The DUP representative said she had heard from constituents who have had to ring hundreds of times to get through to a GP practice receptionist only to find all appointment slots have been taken. She has written to the Royal College of GPs, a body representing the views of doctors, to urge a rethink and to the outgoing Health Minister Robin Swan to ask him to intervene. The Royal College of GPs confirmed last week that the phone first system introduced during the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic is here to stay. The head of the Royal College in Northern Ireland, Dr Lawrence Dorman, said during a recent BBC interview that he is aware of problems with the service but stressed that it is helping doctors meet the demand from patients. Ms Lockhart in a statement said, This unilateral decision by the Royal College of GPs is deeply concerning. There is great public unease and dissatisfaction with the phone first system. I have had accounts from constituents where they have had to ring two to three hundred times to have a conversation with a practice receptionist. Many are then told to ring back the next day as appointments have all been taken. This merry-go-round can last for days, all the while the patient's health can be deteriorating and anxiety increasing. It is not the fault of the staff who are doing an amazing job under intense pressure, but they have been placed in this position. Last week, it was revealed that one-third of all cancers in Britain are diagnosed at A&E. That is a startling statistic, the MP said. However, I have a great concern that with a phone-first system now in place across A&E in Northern Ireland and a phone-first system being made permanent at GP surgeries, those with symptoms, often what can appear innocuous, will miss early diagnosis. So much emphasis is now being placed upon the patient to effectively communicate their concerns and symptoms, and the reality is that this is difficult for many people over the phone. The DUP representative said many healthcare staff had to have close contact with members of the public right throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and urged GPs to now get back to in-person appointments. I do want to pay tribute to those GPs who are meeting patients face-to-face and resuming normal practice procedures. We cannot forget that many frontline healthcare workers, many of whom are the lowest paid, have had close contact, face-to-face interaction with patients throughout the pandemic. We need GPs to join with their colleagues in getting back to face-to-face appointments too, she urged. 
I have written to the Health Minister and Royal College expressing my constituents' concerns and urging them to undertake a full public consultation on this proposal, said Carla Lockhart. The Lurgan area looks set to be rocked by strikes as binmen, bus drivers, school staff and a range of other workers prepare to take industrial action from next week. The Unite Trade Union is finalising strikes by council staff and other workers that could see bins go uncollected, dumps closed and disruption elsewhere for a two-week period from April the 25th. Armagh City, Barnbridge and Craigavon Borough Council has confirmed it will assess the potential impact of the planned strike throughout the district over the next two weeks. The industrial action, which is over pay, will take place over weeks from Monday, April 25th to Sunday, May 1st and from Tuesday, May 3rd to Sunday, May 8th. In a statement provided to the local Democracy Reporting Service last Wednesday, the local authority confirmed it plans to let the public know of any potential impact on its services or facilities in due course as a result of the strike. We will assess the potential impact of strike action on services and facilities and advise residents and customers in due course, said a council spokesperson. The entire TransLink bus network, meanwhile, is also set to be brought to a standstill from the, the same April 25th date as drivers in the Unite and GMB trade unions strike over pay amid the cost of living crisis. And education authority workers, including bus drivers and other staff involved in transport, are also to go on strike for a series of dates from April the 26th. The Education Authority has been informed of further strike dates by members of the Unite Trade Union, which overlaps with the expected strike by bus drivers employed by TransLink. <laughs> Schools have already warned of disruption to transport expected from the strike by Education Authority workers, who are responsible for the so-called yellow buses, relied upon by children who attend special schools across Northern Ireland. Unite members in the education area are to strike from April the 26th to May the 1st and again from May the 3rd to May the 8th. The Rota Chemist. During the week ahead, urgent prescriptions will be dispensed at the following addresses, starting with Portadown. On Sunday the 24th of April, the chemist is Hamill of Thomas Street, which is open from 11 until 12 noon. Next week, from Monday the 25th of April, the chemist is Eden of Bridge Street, open until 7pm. There is no rota chemist in Portadown after Wednesday. Lurgan residents can collect prescribed medicines on Sunday the 23rd of April when the chemist is Clear Healthcare of High Street, which is open from 7 until 8pm. Next week, from Monday the 25th of April, the chemist is Boots of High Street, which is open until 7pm. There is no rota chemist in Lurgan on Wednesday and none in either town on Saturday. Sunday opening applies in both towns for public holidays. Man in critical condition following a one-vehicle crash. A man in his 40s remains in a critical condition in hospital following a road traffic collision on Easter Monday night, April the 18th. Pine Bank in Craigavon was closed for a time due to the one-vehicle crash. A police spokesperson has confirmed that a woman in her 50s who was arrested following the incident, has been released on police bail pending further inquiries. Meanwhile, police are appealing for anyone who witnessed the collision or who may have relevant dashcam footage from the scene to get in touch. 
Anyone who can help should call police on 101 quoting reference number 159218 forward slash 04 forward slash 22. Teen charged with attempted murders. A teenager was remanded into custody, custody last Wednesday, April the 13th, accused of multiple attempted murders. Appearing at Craigavon Magistrates Court by video link from police custody, 19-year-old Ben John Gibson confirmed that he understood the four charges against him. Gibson, from the Glenfield Road in Lurgan, is accused of trying to kill three men and possessing a knife with intent to commit murder last Monday. None of the circumstances surrounding the charges were opened in court, but a PSNI officer said she believed she could connect Gibson to the offences. Appealing for information at the time, a police spokesperson said that shortly before 8.25pm, it was reported to police that one man in his 40s had been wounded in a stabbing in the Union Street area of the town, and another aged in his 20s had been injured in the Windsor Avenue area. While both were taken to hospital, Gibson was later arrested in the Lurgan Park area. Defence solicitor Paul Dugan confirmed he was not applying for bail, but highlighted he had serious concerns about the defendant's mental health. I think there's a huge backstory to that, the solicitor told District Judge Bernie Kelly. Remanding Gibson into custody, Judge Kelly adjourned the case to May the 6th. Appeal after hit-and-run collision. Police are appealing for information following a hit-and-run traffic collision in Lurgan earlier last week. The incident took place around 12.30pm last Thursday, April the 14th. A police spokesperson said, It is believed a grey Skoda SUV pulled out of McDonald's car park and made contact with another vehicle on Edward Street, causing damage to its passenger side. The offending vehicle is likely to now have damage to the front, the spokesperson added. Police are urging anyone who may have witnessed the collision to come forward. They are also keen that any motorist who was in the area at the time should please check their dashcam footage for anything that may be relevant. Anyone who can help is asked to call police on 101, quoting reference number 1088 of 15th the 4th, 2022. Car thieves make off with two blue BMWs in Portadown. Two blue BMWs have been stolen in the Portadown area, prompting police to warn owners of keyless vehicles to be particularly vigilant. Detectives are appealing for information following the thefts in the early hours of Tuesday, April the 19th. On both occasions, a blue BMW was reported stolen. The first theft was reported from the Drumna Canvey Road area at around 2.45am, the second was from the Lisnagrilly Manor area overnight. Again, a blue BMW car was taken in what the police are treating as a keyless car theft. Detective Sergeant Dave Stewart said, inquiries are continuing and police would appeal to anyone with any information or who may have dash cam footage that may feature one or both of these vehicles to contact us on 101, quoting reference number 536-190422. The car thefts have prompted police to warn others to take some steps to help the security of their vehicles. We are urging vehicle owners to be vigilant, especially those with keyless entry cars, said Detective Sergeant Stewart. 
Thieves are now able to gain access to your vehicle by redirecting the wireless signal from your key fob. Use physical car locks such as steering column locks and chains, as well as keeping all car keys, including spares, away from exterior doors and walls. Using a blocking pouch, also called a Faraday pouch lined with metallic material, to help block the wireless signal from the key fob. Series of break-ins could be linked. Three houses have been ransacked in a series of break-ins in Lurgan and Warringstown. Police say they received reports of the incidents on Tuesday. A house at Colleen Road in Lurgan was entered sometime between 2pm and 4pm. A house on the Banbridge Road in Warringstown was entered between 11am and 6pm and a house at Oaklands, also in Warringstown, was entered sometime last Tuesday, April the 12th. Cash and jewellery were reported stolen from the houses in Warringstown, and whilst entry was gained to the house at Colleen Road, nothing is believed to have been taken. Detectives are investigating a possible link between the three incidents as one line of inquiry, and are appealing to anyone who noticed any suspicious activity at any of these locations to contact them at Lurgan Station on 101. There's a picture here of five young ladies who are members of Leary Young Farmers Club recently took part in the finals of the officials judging an assessment how they have carried out their duties in comparison to other officials in Northern Ireland. The results will be announced at the Young Farmer Clubs of Ulster Conference and AGM today, Saturday the 23rd. In the meantime, Blairy Young Farmers Club wishes its members, Abby Morton, Emma Kinnear, Amy Kinnear, Sarah Spence and Zoe Maguire the best of luck. Zoe competed in the best club leader, Sarah for the best secretary, Amy for the best PRO, Abby for senior member of the year and Emma for junior member of the year. All new members welcome. For more information, contact the club, club via Facebook at Blairy Young Farmers Club, Instagram at Blairy Young Farmers Club, or by email at blairyyoungfarmers at outlook.com. And now, local government news. Lurgan among areas to benefit from 1.1 million regeneration scheme. A 1.1 million empty to occupied programme is underway with 12 revitalisation programmes receiving funding to support commercial property regeneration in Lurgan and across the borough. Funded by Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavonborough Council and the Department for Communities, the 1.1 million scheme aims to support and facilitate the replacement of derelict or vacant sites with attractive, high-spec and fit-for-purpose buildings. The scheme will support local revitalisation programmes across Lurgan, Portadown, Armagh, Tandragee, Market Hill and Banbridge, helping to deliver a total investment of more than £4 million to the borough over the next two years. With plans to redevelop commercial buildings into new retail, office and living accommodation, the programme is aimed at helping attract new tenants and reduce long-term vacancy in the borough's urban centres. The new scheme aims to not only positively impact the appearance of high streets across the borough, but also to encourage a renewed sense of community spirit, helping to contribute to the area's long-term viability and prosperity. 
Anyone who would like more information on the Empty to Occupied programme is asked to contact empty to occupied at armagh.banbridgecraigavon.gov.uk. Upper Ban DUP MP Carla Lockhart is hosting what she expects to be a deeply moving evening of reflection next week to remember the thin green line. Announcing the event, the MP said, its purpose is to remember those who protect his life and his liberty in Northern Ireland in the face of a brutal terrorist campaign. We owe a huge debt to the women and women of the RUC, UDR and other armed forces for their service and sacrifice here in Northern Ireland, she said. Faced with the savagery of the IRA campaign that sought to destroy our land and took the lives of so many innocent people, these brave men and women donned the uniform and left their families day after day, not knowing if they would return home. They put their lives at risk to protect us all. Many of their colleagues lost their lives in service. We will never forget their sacrifice. Many who survived lived day by day with the physical and mental scars of what they experienced and witnessed, despite the best efforts of Republicans. We will not allow this gallant service and sacrifice to be discouraged by the perverse rewriting of history. The truth will continue to be told. Despite the best efforts of Sinn Féin to erase their past and shut down those who continue to remind them of the blood stains on the hands of the IRA, the event will feature guests who will share their experiences. I am honoured to have three veterans of high regard joining me to tell their stories and reflect upon what they faced and the price paid by so many of their friends and colleagues. Earl McDowell, QPM, Paul Slane, QPM and Eric Glass, QGM, DCM, are known to many and I know this will be a deeply moving evening for all in attendance, Carla Lockhart added. The evening of reflection will be held in Brownlow House on April the 28th at 7.30pm. Pre-booking is essential and anyone interested in attending can secure a place by contacting Carla Lockhart's office on 02838310088 or by contacting our email carlalockhart.mp.parliament.uk. Dog filing concerns at the lakes. Craig Avon Councillor has called for the concerns of primary school children to be taken seriously over a call for more bins at Craig Avon Lakes in an effort to tackle the rise in dog filing in the area. Speaking at a meeting of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Avon Borough Council's Leisure and Community Services Committee, Councillor Catherine Nelson said she had been contacted by P7 pupils at St Patrick's Primary School, Acha Common, who expressed their concern at the increasing amount of dog fowl that they have seen around the lakes recently. I've raised this issue before, but I want to give a shout out to the P7s in St Patrick's Acha Common, who have recently written to local councillors about this issue, said the Sinn Féin councillor. They are concerned about the amount of dog fouling at Craig Avon Lakes. In recent weeks, they have noted a huge increase in dog fouling at the lakes. A number of them have walked in it, cycled in it and noted dog poo bags hanging on trees or thrown on the floor. To hear that from young people, our future generation is actually really disappointing. The lack of bins and the need for more is something I have raised before, said Councillor Nelson. While I don't expect the officers to have the answer tonight, I would really appreciate if they could look into this for me so that in these brighter days when the lakes are going to be used by mammoth numbers, 
that we have the, the process in place to ensure it is clean and tidy, particularly for our young people that are using them. With the chair and vice chair of the committee, both absent, Councillor Darren McNally took charge of the meeting and told Councillor Nelson council staff are currently looking at the, this issue. Council's head of environmental services, Barry Patience, is already looking at this issue and will be bringing something back on this issue through the, through the Environment Committee. Officers will provide an update on the situation as it is it progresses to members of this committee as well, confirmed Councillor McNally. DEP Councillor Margaret Tinsley praised the young people for speaking up but said she nor her UUP colleague Councillor Kenneth Twible were contacted by the children. I did not receive any correspondence about this nor, nor did Councillor Kenneth Twible, she said. Well done to the school for highlighting this. I just... I just don't want Councillor Nelson thinking we didn't support it or we didn't get back to the school. I just want to make it clear that they did not contact me in the first place, but I do want to say I support them on this issue and I would hope all the young people can get behind this. Councillor McNally said he was in agreement with Councillor Tinsley and told the Chamber it is good to see young people taking an interest in their environment. I know in my area we have a youth club out doing a litter pick around Karna Forest, he said. It is great to see that happening and that message of education getting out among our young people. So well done to all involved. Council moves to divest pensions fund of Russian oil companies. Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council is to call for the non-departmental public body responsible for local government pensions management to divest from Russian oil companies as soon as possible. The DUP's councillor, Mark Baxter, so proposed at a recent meeting of the local authorities' Environmental Services Committee. Mr Baxter noted there had been some conversation in the cha chamber of late about the need to divest from fossil fuels, and he thanked the Northern Ireland Local Government Officers' Superannuation Committee, that's N-I-L-G-O-S-C, for presenting to members in February. Between 2015 and 2019, there had been an 80% reduction in investment in fossil fuels in this pension fund, he said. However, given what we have seen in the war between Russia and Ukraine and the volatility of the fossil fuel market worldwide, I think as a council, we could go a bit further when it comes to NILGOSC. I am quite happy that we work on it together through the director to bring that back to full council. Party colleague councillor Paul Greenfield seconded the proposal. Alliance party councillor Brian Pope said he was supportive of the proposal, noting his party colleague councillor Owen Tennyson had raised the issue previously in the chamber. The committee approved the proposal. Members of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Environmental Services Committee have welcomed an update on the local authority's Wildflower Road Verge pilot project. The programme has been proposed to allow native wildflowers on a number of road verges to flourish by allowing them to grow in seed. The verges will then be cut and the vegetation removed. Over a period of time, this will increase the amount of native wildflowers and allow them to produce pollen and nectar for a longer period of time, 
providing food for pollinators, which are known to be in decline. Among the locations chosen for the pilot wildflower project across the borough are West Link to Armagh Road, varied from Walkover Bridge to Slip Road, Northway, Craigwell Avenue to West Street, Old Pillbox, Tandragee Road, Glenlochen, Scarva, and a strip of grass opposite Tandragee Junction in Market Hill. Members were also advised that appropriate signage will be erected to inform and alert the public to the project. Deaths in the community. Britannia LOL number 24, Maguire, Albert. The officers and members of the above lodge deeply regret the passing of their esteemed member, Brother Albert Maguire, PM. The lodge tenders its most sincere sympathy to the family circle. Handel, Sarah Louisa. Passed away peacefully in Orndine, Hampshire on the 15th of April 2022. Dearly loved wife of the late Jeff, beloved mother of Anne, Anne Louise, loved mother-in-law of Adrian, cherished grandmother of Joseph and Thomas. Robinson, Anne Elizabeth, 14th of April 2022. The officers and members of LOL 78 and RBP 78 would like to send heartfelt condolences to Bobby and family circle after the sad passing of Anne. Smith, 16th of April 2022, peacefully at home, Ulsterville Park, Portadown, surrounded by his loving family. Norman, beloved and devoted husband of Sandra, cherished father of Sonia and Tracy, father-in-law of Daryl and Lee, also much-loved granda of Ben and Katie Lee, and a treasured brother of Trevor, Gordon and the late Reggie. And now some advertising, SD Kells of Easter savings across all of their departments in Portadown, Lurgan and Banbridge. Harm Reduction Cafe Invitation. Anyone in the Portadown area who's an interest in addiction issues, including healthcare staff, service users and carers, are invited to take part in a forthcoming Harm Reduction Cafe. It will be on Friday, May the 6th, 12 to 3 p.m. in the Courtyard Garden at St Luke's Hospital, Armagh. Sport, starting with motorsport. Glenavie's Dan Shannon took victory in the feature event, the Stock Rods Irish Open Championship, whilst Crumlin's Adam Maxwell marked his return to racing with a polished heat and final double in the National Hot Rods. The Mavadi's Josh Gallagher was another heat and final double winner, this time the two L national bangers, but even that couldn't stop his rivals team, Gods, taking the Irish team's championship victory. Ten-year-old debutant Leighton Hughes from Antrim took a heat and final double in the junior productions, whilst the feature racer in the 13,000 stock cars was Anna Moore's Robbie Wright. Racing continues at Tully Rowan Oval this coming Saturday, April the 23rd, with another five formula programme of racing. The first outing of the season for the rookie bangers heads the bill, with more than 30 cars booked in. The 2.0 Hot Rolls compete for the opening round of the Hoosier Tires Challenge Series in the Junior Productions, will contest the Moppet's Shield for the first time, whilst also on track will the Super Stock and 1300 Stock cars. First race leaves the grid at 6.30pm. And now football, Bell still making his mark. Tony Bell enjoys a legacy built around both one magic moment in Irish Cup history 
and sustained Middle Ulster League success across decades. He lifted his latest trophy last month at 68 years old, leading Seago to Intermediate B title glory. That success arrived six days before former club Cliftonville lost to Crusaders in the Irish Cup semi-final, stretching as a result beyond 43 years, the Reds wait for a hero to follow in Bell's footsteps. Bell's Irish Cup trophy winning goal to settle the 1979 showpiece in the closing minutes at the expense of his hometown club Portadown secured a spot in Cliftonville folklore. Entertaining encounter as Lurgan Celtic face Riverdale at Allen Hill Park. In the MUFL Division 3, Lurgan Celtic 5, Riverdale 3. Lurgan Celtic returned to action on Saturday at Allen Hill Park against Riverdale. A few players were missing for the hoops, although Crawford returned to the starting lineup following suspension. Young, youngster McConaughey returned in goal, and Michael Linden was a welcome starter following injury. Man of the match was Tyler Burns, whose energy and influence on the game excelled. Lurgan Celtic wish Riverdale the best of luck for the remainder of their season and thank them for the contest this season. Next up for Celtic is an away trip to Lisburn to face Warren YM next Saturday. Ported Islands and Gallant Swifts had to settle for a point each after their clash on Tuesday night at Shamrock Park. Billy Steadman should have put the host in front in the opening minutes, but he fired wide when in on goal. For the Swifts, Reese Campbell got in behind the port's defence, but he hesitated, allowing Greg Hall to get back and to make a crucial block. On the approach to half-time, Casaligo Machino forced a great save out of Dwayne Nelson. Both sides had chances in the second half, but had to settle for a point apiece. Portadown's next match is against Glenavon on Saturday, April the 23rd, at Mournview Park with a 3pm kickoff. And now Motorsport. Motorsport Ireland Rally Academy driver William Crichton will resume his FIA Junior World Rally Championship bid this weekend as he tackles the Croatia Rally. Crichton, 24 from Moira, stormed to his maiden junior WRC podium and third place last time out, despite making his Rally Sweden debut to get his 2022 campaign off to an impressive start. Now Crichton and co-driver Liam Regan will continue their championship battle at the Zagreb-based asphalt event this weekend from April the 22nd to the 24th, but will head to the Central European Rally with the benefit of previous experience having tackled the event last season on their junior WRC launch. With around 300 kilometres of special stages spread across Three days of action. Each test offers a dynamic mix of unique characteristics with narrow countryside roads blended with high-speed sections and undulating asphalt segments. Turkington set for new season. Portadown's Colin Turkington is preparing for this weekend start to the 2022 season of the British Touring Car Championship at Donington Park. Four-time champion uh, Turkington will be behind the wheel of his new team BMW 330e M Sport after completing his pre-season programme last week. He showed positive pace in the group sessions but has insisted it's impossible to know where we'll be when considering his qualifying potential. 
Donington Park will be a step into the unknown for the drivers and teams as they get to grips with the strategies of hybrid deployment in racing conditions. We've covered so much ground since the curtain dropped on the 2021 season and we've made considerable strides forward in our understanding of the hybrid system the past month, said Turkington. It's been a positive testing programme, but still extremely limited as we get to grips with a brand new system. Requests for fans ahead of election. TUV Upper Band Assembly candidate Darren Foster has written to the Chief Electoral Officer Virginia McVeigh requesting that football fans travelling to the Rangers youth of semi-final match against Leipzig on polling day are permitted to vote via post or proxy. He said there was a strong argument that fans going to Glasgow for the game should be treated sympathetically. Members of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Governance, Resources and Strategy Committee were informed the UK Health Security Agency has advised a more targeted approach to test and trace. They'll be introduced from today, Friday. As a result, PCR testing will no longer be recommended or available for most of the general public. This means the COVID-19 in-person testing site at Kernan will close at the end of business day. However, the structures and site will not be removed immediately, with the committee advised the start date to remove the infrastructure is the week commencing June the 20th. Go Ahead for All Stars Scheme A summer scheme for children with disabilities will once again take place this year, with ABC Council officers urged to explore ways to expand the vital event in future years. During a meeting of the Leisure and Community Services Committee, members were told that the Council has received a letter of offer from the Southern Health and Social Care Trust to deliver the All-Star Summer Scheme for children with a disability in Guildford Community Centre. Traditionally, the scheme takes place for three weeks and offers fun and challenging sport and physical activity, art and music sessions to approximately 70 children aged 7 to 17 with a disability and, a, and their siblings. The children are referred to the scheme by the Trust who part fund the scheme at a cost of £10,000 with the Council also spending £10,000 on the scheme. According to the report, initial plans are in place for a three-week scheme to take place this summer with a full quota of staff in Guilford Community Centre and, a, and an act activity day at South Lake Leisure Centre. The Trust will make refer referrals to the scheme and deliver appropriate training to staff and provide sufficient volunteers, nurses and care workers for those participating with specific needs. Assistance Centre opens to offer help to refugees. Brownlow Community Hub in Craigavon opened last week as one of four new regional centres offering assistance to Ukrainian refugees as they arrive in Northern Ireland. The centre, facilitated by Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council, will be open every Wednesday from 9.30am to 4pm, offering access to advice and information on key services, including legal, health, education, jobs, benefits, housing and immigration. Lord Mayor Alderman Glenn Barr said, We have all witnessed the devastating impact of the ongoing war in Ukraine and the unfolding humanitarian crisis as more and more people are forced to flee their homes. The opening of the centre is part of a multi-agency response coordinated by the Executive Office, 
working in partnership with other statutory agencies and charity organisations to provide assistance across Northern Ireland. Partners include the Law Centre, Department for Communities, Flex Language Services, Red Cross, Education Authority, Northern Ireland Housing Association, Southern Health and Social Care Trust, PSNI and Bryson. Oleg Shenkaruk, Chair of Ukrainians in Northern Ireland Community Group, said the response from the people of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council to the crisis in Ukraine has been amazing. Arrangements for the centres will be kept under review in response to the demand for services and those attending will need to bring ID and proof of the scheme under which they are registered. Further information is available in relation to the Ukraine Assistance Centres on the Homes for Ukraine scheme on the Council website www.armabanbridgecraigavon.gov.uk forward slash Ukraine support. Emergency services have been praised after a young boy was rescued after getting into difficulty in a river near Tandragee at the weekend. The incident happened in the River Kersher on Saturday afternoon. Independent councillor Paul Berry said, I am glad to learn that thankfully a young lad has been rescued by the emergency services in the old Guildford Road area of Tandragee. Sadly, a young person became trapped under a rock along the stretch of the Kersher River near the locality known as Burrows Cave in the town. He continued, It was very concerning with the reports, but with the swift and professional help of the Fire Service of Northern Ireland and the remaining emergency services, we were all relieved when he was rescued from the river. Like all rivers, they can be very dangerous in locations, and especially the Cusher River, with a very strong flow, full of dangers, and I would appeal for people to stay clear of the river. Mr Berries added, the local community wished the young lad a speedy recovery and is thankful he was rescued and safe. This could have been much worse. I would salute the fire service personnel who risked their lives to save others. Mr Berry said, It was a reminder of their dangerous jobs. A police spokesperson said, The boy was taken to hospital for treatment of his injuries following the rescue at around 3.20pm on Saturday. Volunteers are officially epic. Volunteers from the Museum of Orange Heritage at Sloan's House, Loch Gall, are the very first within the local council area and possibly Northern Ireland to participate in the EPIC Awards in partnership with Volunteer NI and the Craigavon and Banbridge Volunteer Centre. The Lord Mayor of the Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council, Alderman Glen Barr, was present at the museum recently to present certificates of achievement to the volunteers. Also present at the ceremony was Donna Stewart, volunteer centre manager, and her staff. The Empowering People and Communities, or EPIC programme, recognises and validates the contribution made by volunteers of all ages across Northern Ireland. Certificates are awarded in three categories, bronze for 50 hours volunteering, silver for 100 hours, and gold for 200 hours. A spokesperson for the museum director said, we always knew that our volunteers are epic. Now they have received official recognition. The volunteers undertake all the many tasks on paid around Sloan's house, including providing reception cover, cleaning and garden maintenance, as well as being tour guides. 
Kings Park Primary School celebrates success. Energetic pupils at Kings Park Primary School in Lurgan have enjoyed a special training session led by Athletics NI running participation officer Paula Wallace. The treat followed their success at the Flavin Porridge Athletics Northern Ireland Junior Cross Country League. At the league final, which took place last month at Molusk, Kings Park Primary School was awarded the best overall girls team. Kings Park also claimed this title in 2019 at the last cross country league prior to the pandemic. The visit from Paula Wallace included a strength and conditioning session along with the opportunity to ask for training tips. Fian Valley continues sponsorship of Agri Show. Fian Valley is continuing its long-standing partnership as headline sponsor to Armagh County Agricultural Show on its 175th anniversary. The annual family show and country festival will take place on Saturday, June the 11th in Gosford Forest Park, close to Market Hill. Chairman of Armagh Show, George McCall, remarked, We would like to extend our appreciation to Fian Valley. They have been a constant and generous supporter to us over the years. This is a special show as we celebrate our 175th year and it gives us pleasure to share it with Fian Valley, our other sponsors, exhibitors, competitors and the public. Call for more details on broadband rollout. Fibrous and the Department of the Economy are to be invited to provide local councillors with an update on the rollout of broadband mm. infrastructure in the district. Fibrous Networks Limited is a telecommunications provider awarded the tender for the delivery of Project Stratum, a Stormont-funded project that will provide gigabyte-capable full-fibre broadband infrastructure to 79,000 premises across Northern Ireland. Within the bounds of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craig Avonborough Council alone, it is anticipated the project will ensure 10,080 premises have access to a full-fibre broadband network. Charity donates sensory toys to children at Blossom. Youngsters at Craigavon Area Hospital's Blossom Children's and Young People's Centre are to receive sensory toys thanks to a charity drive. The Northern Ireland Children to Lapland Trust, that's N-I-C-L-T, has partnered with eight Northern Ireland companies to provide children's hospital units with the much-needed gifts. The initiative to deliver the much-needed sensory toys and equipment to paediatric units across Northern Ireland has been deemed a success by the charity. The scheme included eight paediatric units, including the Blossom Children's and Young People's Centre in Craigavon and the Northern Ireland Children's Hospice. It was created by NICLT trustee Dr Mark Rollins to support children living with life-threatening and life-limiting conditions and who spend a lot of their precious time in hospital and or hospital settings. The idea came about as a result of the pandemic which prevented the charity from carrying out its traditional annual flight to Lapland which has been creating memories for children with challenging conditions for the past 12 years. A number of leading Northern Ireland businesses are corporate partners of the Northern Ireland Children to Lapland Trust. Their ongoing financial support allowed the charity to present approximately £1,000 worth of sensory toys and equipment to their respective paediatric units. Among those corporate par partners were the Bushmills Inn, Causeway Hospital, 
Glens of Antrim Potatoes, Antrim Area Hospital and SeaTech NI in Newry, Daisy Hill Hospital. Also Hagen Homes, Northern Ireland Children's Hospice, Wineflare, Craigavon Area Hospital and Barclay Communications, the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. Other donors included Cozy Roof, Altnagelvin Area Hospital and Bell's Crossgar Motors, Ulster Hospital. The charity was also delighted to be, to be able to make a similar donation to the South West Acute Hospital in Enniskillen. Study into male breast cancer, a new international consortium to uncover genes that lead to breast cancer in men, has been launched at Queen's University in Belfast. The consortium, known as MERGE, will discover and characterise new genetic risk factors for male breast cancer by analysing DNA from 5,000 men. The DNA will be compared to that of 10,000 men without breast cancer, making it the largest study of its kind worldwide. The team aims to develop a better understanding of the causes of breast cancer in men that may lead to new treatments for the disease. Male breast cancer is a relatively rare disease that accounts for less than 1% of breast cancers diagnosed every year in the UK, equating to 400 new cases annually. The initiative is led by Queen's and Sapanzia University of Rome and supported by the US National Cancer Institute. We have now come to the end of our recording for this week. Our thanks to the team of volunteers who edited and recorded this week and to Mackles for collecting the Portadown Times and Lurgan Mail for us and to the Presbyterian Church for the use of the studio. Editing with me this week were William and Ken. Our technician was Michael. And reading with me this week were Ken, William and Sarah. From the newsroom at the Old Man's, this is Patricia signing off. You can also listen to us on Facebook if you go to www.facebook.com forward slash News. Thank you for spending time with us and all our good wishes for the week ahead. The regular team who've uh, taken full advantage of the holiday should be back with you in four weeks' time. Please remember that there is a magazine following this recording and also remember to return your wallets. Sound News is a Craigavon Talking Newspaper production. It's good to have your company. In a few minutes, the April 2022 edition of Science Friendly Talking Magazine from the Women of Portadown Business and Professional Women's Club. From the heart of Portadown, with assistance from our many volunteers at the Old Man Studio, Church Street, you're listening to Craig Avon Talking Newspaper, a registered charity with over 40 local volunteers who help out every month. Before we start, a reminder of some housekeeping. Having listened to our news and magazine, you are reminded to promptly return the recording you're listening to now in the padded wallet provided with it. Please enclose, enclose any comments about the service our volunteers provide in writing alongside the USP pen drive. 
And of course, to guarantee a prompt <coughs> delivery of your next edition, please remember to reverse the address label before setting off for the post box. This week, we feature David Essex for, for our song of the week. And of course, some extracts from recent UK and Irish newspapers, magazines and much, much more. So this is Holy Week um, that we're recording in this week. And I thought I'd bring you a little piece about Monday Thursday service, uh, which is due to take place this Thursday, obviously. <coughs> and um, it comes on the back of the Queen recently announcing that she'll not be taking part in this year's service, which is quite unprecedented. Um, as she, it has been a fixture of her religious calendar throughout her 70 year reign but Prince Charles will be taking her place and we're seeing that a lot now in a lot of the things that she's doing so while people assume that she is following in the footsteps of other ro royal monarchs none of them was ever as assiduous as she has been in maintaining the tradition it is a ritual that expresses her belief in what being a Christian monarch is about the service takes place to commemorate the Last Supper of Jesus and his disciples when they gathered together for a meal before he was arrested, tried and crucified. While the Christian sacrament of communion is linked to that meal, where Jesus gave bread and wine to his followers, saying, Do this in memory of me, English monarchs commemorate in the Monday service another moment that night when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. This was seen as an act of love and humility, Imagine cleaning those filthy, dusty feet in a desert land and commemorating it was also seen as a way that the monarch could express his or her humility as well. Medieval monarchs first practised by Monday service rituals by washing the feet of the poor and giving alms to them. The first king recorded as doing so was John who gave clothes, forks, food and other items to the poor in Yorkshire. Then in 1213, at a ceremony in Rochester, he gave 13 <coughs> pence to 13 men, a number that was a reminder of Jesus and his 12 apostles. Other monarchs followed, with Henry IV even, beginning the tradition that was the number of pence given should reflect the monarch's age. Some monarchs took the ceremony particularly seriously. Queen Mary I washed the feet of 41 women in 1556, the year of her 41st birthday, and also gave them 41 pence each, plus other gifts of bread, fish and clothes, including her own gown. Later, court officials would wash the feet of the poor first, before the monarch had to endure doing it. Charles II, after the Restoration, attended even during the plague years of 1661 and 1663. In later years, foot washing was completely out, and so was the involvement of the monarch. Instead, an almoner... Almoner? would participate. By the 20th century, members of the royal family would attend, particularly Princess Helena, Queen Victoria's third daughter, and her own daughter, Princess Marie Louise. After Marie Louise's attendance in 1931, she suggested that her cousin, George V, should distribute Monday money the next year. And though he agreed, it was the only time he did so. Edward VII did the one Holy Week that he was king in 1936, while George VI's plan to do so was interrupted by the Second World War. The current Queen began the habit of taking the service around the country to different cathedrals. The service, though, always follows a similar pattern, with two New Testament readings. One is John 13, verse 14, with its mandatum, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, from which Monday Thursday gets its name. And the other is Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40, with its verse, 
just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. There are two gifts, a white leather bag containing special Monday coins and a red leather one containing other money. A man and a woman are chosen for each year of the Queen's age and the money also represents the years she has lived. Recipients are usually people being recognised for their service to the community. Six silver dishes are used to hold the gifts. One, the traditional Monday dish, forms part of the regalia used at coronations and is held at the Tower of London when not in use. All six dishes date from the reign of Charles II. Anthems are sung by the choir of the Chapel Royal and the local cathedral choir while the Monday gifts are distributed, ending with Handel Zakok, the priest, based on the Bible's first book of Kings, also used at the coronation. It is a reminder each year of the monarch's crowning and the links of the British monarchy to scripture and its ideas of king kingship. For the Queen at now 96, 95, come in 96, and with mobility issues, the Monday service would certainly be taxing, standing for a considerable time as she distributes the gifts. Its importance for her and the nation is that it is the one occasion when she goes out to the people to offer gifts, rather than the usual tradition of them coming to her to be given awards and honours. The Queen's decision to take the tradition around the country was also full of symbolism, the equivalent of a pilgrimage that has lasted throughout the 70 years of the reign of, the, of Britain's longest-serving monarch. So that's a bit of information about Monday Thursday and a bit of a background to how long it has been a tradition um, in our royal family. I've got a little bit here about the meaning of Good Friday and uh, it's Jackie here and I always read out of Ireland's own as you, anybody who remembers me reading knows. But it's Cassidy's talking about the meaning of Good Friday and it's a very different take on it here. So when the Ukraine was invaded, my heart sank. This event promoted by President Putin and his inner circle felt like a return to barbarism in Europe after over 70 years more or less war free. We had the 1990s conflicts in Serbia and the Balkans, of course, but they seem to be relatively confined to areas of ethnic disagreement. However, if you were a victim of genocide, that is, the survivor of the massacre of Srebrenica, you would still know that barbarism had been visited upon you. At the time, I was revolted by the snipers of Sarajevo, and it was the same feeling of revulsion which came upon me when the latest assault filled our television screens it has prompted a slew of reflections. First, the episode confirmed what I have believed since I was a child. All war is waste. As the Holy Book puts it, there is a time for war and a time for peace, which is not a statement welcoming war, but acceptance of the fact that war happens because humans sometimes see no alternatives. And then there are wars which face down tyranny, with all, all other means of solution exhausted. But even when we speculate about the notion of a just war, there is no escaping that war is waste, utter waste, senseless waste. I know there are many acts of heroism to be found in any conflict, but they are in the context of waste and cannot sugar over the horrors. My second awareness made me ashamed. I noticed that when a war affects our interests, we take notice. This war is on the borders of Europe, but there are horrible things happening in Syria, Burma, Yemen and the occupied territories in Palestine. These situations fall off the news stream, 
but the misery inflicted on civilians by the military is ongoing and forgotten by all except those in the middle of it. So when you are alerted to such carnage in so many places, you wonder if we humans are civilised at all or if there's only a thin veneer over our destructive instincts. The feeling of anger gave way, gave way to feelings of powerlessness. Must one curse the darkness or is it possible to light a candle? How does a person try to keep hope alive? Here's what one faithful Christian told me he does. I nominate some poor Russian conscript, let's call him Ivor, and a recruit to the Ukrainian resistance, let's call him Sergei. Then I light a candle for each and pray that whatever duty they are called upon to do will be done with self-respect and with as little violence as possible and that when the whole bloody mess is sorted that they will be able to go home to their families, their parents, their children. And may God have mercy on the warmongers and soften even their hearts. John was speaking of the possibility of hope, even in the bleakest moments. And it being the month that's in it, I wondered if this is the meaning of Good Friday. Mm, Isn't it? Pretty awful. Something's mm. going on. Yeah, it is. OK, I'm going to change the mood a little bit. Um, I have got a little booklet here that um, I was given, and it's called The Full Moon, and it's some folklore and traditions, and it's by a lady called Lolly Spence, and Lolly is a lady from Northern Ireland, and she does a lot of um, showing tourists around, explaining all sorts of things about buildings and et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, during lockdown, she wasn't able to get out to do her guiding, her guidance work, I suppose you'd call it guidance work, wouldn't you? Um, so she wrote this little book about the moon. So, hope you find it interesting. The moon is, in terms of distance, the closest heavenly body to Earth. We can see it in the sky for three weeks out of four. For thousands of years, people have used its light to guide them in the dark and to keep track of the passing of time. Earth's full moon have different names because in ancient times it was common to mark the changing seasons by following the lunar month rather than the solar year, on which the 12 months in our modern calendar are based. For millennia, people across Europe, as well as Native American tribes, gave each full moon a nickname to keep track of the year's passage. <clears throat> Most of the names relate to an activity or an event that took place at the time in each location. Uh, Oh, pardon me. However, it wasn't a uniform system, and tribes tended to name and count moons differently. <coughs> Some, for example, counted four seasons a year, while others counted five. Others defined a year as 12 moons, while others said there were 13. The 13th moon actually only happens every once in a blue moon. The ancients also noted with all other lunar special events, which I've defined below. It's worth going onto NASA's YouTube channel as they have some excellent clips showcasing these phenomena. And the first one is a supermoon. And it happens when a full moon occurs at the same time as it reaches the closest point to the Earth, a point called a perigree. And the supermoon can appear up to f a fifth larger and 30% brighter than a regular full moon. I'm sure many of us have seen that one. A total lunar eclipse occurs when the sun, the earth and the full moon are exactly aligned with earth in the middle, putting the moon into our shadow. 
A blood moon is where the moon takes on a crimson colour as it drifts into the shadow of the earth. Our atmosphere bends or reflects leftover light from the world's sunsets and sunrises to bathe the moon in a red light. The more dust or clouds in the Earth's atmosphere during the eclipse, the redder and the, the redder the moon will appear. <clears throat> and a blue moon, usually there are 12 full moons in a calendar year, or three moons per quarter. However, every two or three years, there's an extra 13th moon. So one of the quarters has four moons instead of three. It is the third of these four moons which is always designated as the blue moon. And the term has nothing to do with the actual colour of the moon, although a visually a blue moon may occur under certain atmospheric conditions. <clears throat> she goes on in her book then to talk about um, all of the um, months of the year have moons um, and they've got different colours and things. Um, so as we're now in April, I'm going to talk about April. And April is a pink moon. And there's a little poem at the start of it, um, and it's, called, it's a little poem called From Silver by Walter de la Mer. And it's slowly, silently, now the moon walks a night in her silver shoon. This, this way and that she peers and sees silver fruit upon silver trees. Um, it, it was Galileo who in 1609 produced a set of six watercolours of the moon, which he observed through a telescope. And these pictures represent the first realistic depictions of the moon in history. We tend to talk about full moons and crescent moons. When they are growing bigger towards a full moon, they are waxing, and when they are shrinking, they are waning. According to folklore, if the crescent moon is tilted, it is said to be howling in, and fair weather is expected. Conversely, if the crescent is vertical, the moon is running out, and you can expect rain. I think we'd like more of the former than the latter. The April full moon is known as the pink moon, although some Native American tribes called it the sprouting grass moon, budding moon, as new shoots start to appear, or the flower moon. Some know it as the egg moon as birds start laying eggs. Another name is the fish moon, as this was when certain fish swam upspring to spawn. And the Cherokees believed that flowing water was under the control of a spirit called the long man, and they performed rituals to honour him during the full pink moon. For example, the knee-deep dance, based on the movements of the water frog. I believe I have seen some men unknowingly and unwittingly doing this dance in Belfast. <laughs> but is the pink moon pink? Nope. It's actually named after a wildflower, flocks, which blooms pink at this time of year, also known as moss pink or creeping flocks. It's a, glory, a gorgeous plant native to the eastern United States and one of the earliest widespread flowers of spring. According to folklore, this is the best time for the next few weeks for killing weeds, thinning, pruning, mowing, cutting timber and planting below ground crops. Ruth, you better get yours in. Also moon related is the dandelion, the only flower that represents the three celestial bodies of the sun, the moon and the stars. The yellow flowers resemble the sun, the puffball resembles the moon, and the dispersing seeds resemble the stars. Low today we think of them as weeds, dandelions are incredibly useful plants. And if you're, if you're a bee, there's nothing more attractive than that big yellow landing pad full of nectar. And incidentally, you can make dandelion wine or dandelion beer, or even root of dandelion coffee.
Here we go. There you go. And I can tell you, as someone who works in gardening and in teaching, I do think the moon affects things. The weather, people say it doesn't affect the weather, but it does affect the jet stream. And it basically, if the jet stream's above Northern Ireland, we have good weather. You know, if it's sort of where port above, what? Uh, Rathlin Island up there somewhere, our weather's good. And it is up there at the moment, I have to say. And well, they say the moon, I don't know whether it pulls it up or pushes it down, but yeah. and that you also get generally two days calm weather when there's a full moon. Right. But uh, the, fe the February one was a shocker. You know, maybe you <laughs> have a winter was, one. That's yeah. <laughs> it was wild, yeah. <clears throat> well, I've got a couple of poems here about spring. And we'll maybe do Home Thoughts from Abroad first. And it's a poem by Robert Browning, and it's Home Thoughts from Abroad. <clears throat> oh, to be in England now that April's there, and whoever wakes in England sees some morning unaware that the lowest boughs and the brushwood sheaf around the elm tree bowl are in tiny leaf, while the chaffinch sings in the orchard bough in England now. And after April, when May follows, and the whitethroat builds, builds and all the swallows, hark where my blossom pear tree in the hedge leans to the field and scatters on the clover blossoms and dewdrops at the bent spray's edge. That's the wise thrush, he sings each song twice over, lest you should think he could never recapture the first fine careless rapture. And though the fields look rough with hoary dew, all will be gay when the noontide noon wakes anew. The buttercups, the little children's dower, far brighter than this gaudy melon flower. And on flowers, it couldn't be spring without... William Wordsworth daffodils mm -hmm. and there's so many daffodils as just when Heather was talking there about the nice bright yellow uh, dandelions I have an awful lot of little tete-a-tetes and daffodils right around the edge of my garden so this is one close to my heart so it's William Wordsworth daffodils and I think nearly everybody knows a little bit of this poem mm -hmm. <coughs> but not all of it yes I wandered lonely as a lonely as a cloud that floats o'er high or vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the milky way, they stretched a never-ending line along the margin of the bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their head in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves and lee. A poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. And having said it's very well known, I got myself tangled up in the first line. <laughs> so there you go. I have actually been in at Wordsworth House. Oh yes, very, Dove very Cottage. many, many years ago. It's beautiful. Unfortunately, the daffodils were not bouncing about in the breeze. No, but when he talks about them being on the bay and on the edge of yeah. the, is it Windermere? I'm not sure which yeah. of the lakes it is. Yeah. It's uh, gorgeous. Dove place. Cottage on is absolutely beautiful. <clears throat> well, just like um, Shakespeare. Or 
Wordsworth. Wordsworth even is so well known. Um, so was Shakespeare. Oh yeah. And it's his um, birthday this month. Oh, is it? Well, that's very timely then. Isn't his it? birthday and his death date. He died on his birthday. Oh, okay. Twenty third of April. Uh-huh. Well, that's another special day, isn't <laughs> it? It's George's day <laughs> and Jackie's birthday. <laughs> A very fine day in the calendar then, is the 23rd of April. So anyway, um, I follow, this is another royal thing, I'm in a royal theme tonight. You are. So the Duchess of Cornwall has um, uh, what she calls the reading room, which is an Instagram post that she puts out and it's a number of books and people come along and read them and she has guest readers. So a few weeks ago she actually had Prince Charles doing a bit of reading and it was the Bernard Levin um piece called Quoting Shakespeare and it was a real eye-opener to me um, just how much Shakespeare has influenced um, our language mm-hmm. even Absolutely. to this day. Yeah. If you cannot understand my argument and declare it's Greek to me, you're quoting Shakespeare. If you claim to be more sinned against than sinning, you're quoting Shakespeare. If you recall your salad days, you're quoting Shakespeare. If you act more in sorrow than in anger, if you, your wish is further is farther to the thought, if your lost property has vanished into thin air, you're quoting Shakespeare. If you've ever refused to budge an inch or suffered from green-eyed jealousy, if you've played fast and loose, if you've been tongue-tied, a tar of strength, hoodwinked or in a pickle, if you've knitted your brows, made a virtue of necessity, insisted on fair play, slept not one wink, stood on ceremony, danced attendance on your Lord and Master, laughed yourself into stitches, had short shrift, cold comfort or too much of a good thing, if you have seen better days or lived in a fool's paradise, why be that as it may, the more fool you, for it's a foregone conclusion that you are, as good luck would have it, quoting Shakespeare. If you think it is early days and clear out bag and baggage, if you think it is high time and that. That is the long and short of it. If you believe that the game is up and that the truth will out, even if it involves your own flesh and blood, if you lie low till the crack of doom because you suspect foul play, if you have your teeth set on edge at one fell swoop, without rhyme or reason, then to give the devil his due, if the truth were known, for surely you have a tongue in your head, you are quoting Shakespeare. Even if you bid me good riddance and sent me packing, if you wish I was dead as a doornail, if you think I am an eyesore, a laughing stock, the devil incarnate, a stony-hearted villain, bloody-minded, or a blinking idiot, then, by Jove, O oh Lord, tut tut, for goodness' sake, what the dickens! But me, no buts. It's all, it is all one to me. For you are quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> so, how many of those phrases do you use on a daily basis? An awful lot. <laughs> That's right. And there's. All that glitters is not gold. Yes, which so is well known. I think exactly they're true. One is that glistens is not gold. Yeah, just Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that if Ruth's Ruth going in a bit of a royalist <laughs> bit, I'm going to redress the balance here. <laughs> I've got my little pocket history of Ireland, and I'm going to give you a quick snapshot of what happened during the Easter Rising. We have to have a very balanced view in life here. So it's just a little tiny snapshot, and funny enough. Easter Sunday that year was the 23rd of April, so how coincidental is that? So it's not this year, it's... 23rd is about as late nearly as it possibly can be, but anyway. The Easter Rising. During Easter week in 1916, Dublin became a battlefield as the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army fought against the British in a doomed attempt to establish the Irish Republic. 
By 1916, the citizens and officials of Dublin had grown used to the men of the Irish Volunteers marching and parading through the streets in defence of Home Rule. Led by the popular and seemingly peaceful Professor Owen McNeill, the British authorities generally allowed the militia group to do as they pleased. However, unbeknownst to nearly everyone, including McNeill, the Irish Volunteers had been infiltrated by the radical core of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Led by the articulate and persuasive Patrick Pearce, the IRB took control of the operations of the Irish Volunteers and began plotting rebellion. The main impediment to the planned uprising was a lack of weapons. So while the IRB used legal and illegal means to obtain small arms, they soon sought help from Britain's wartime enemy. After long and complicated negotiations, the Germans agreed to send a shipment of weapons to Ireland to aid the rebellion. The IRB also formed an alliance with James Connolly and his small but well-trained and well-equipped Irish citizen army. With all the pieces in place, the uprising was scheduled for the 23rd of April, Easter Sunday. So it also gives a few little snippets here of what was happening each day on Saturday the 22nd of April. Just one day before the planned rising, disaster struck the conspirators. The Royal Navy intercepted the Aude, the German vessel carrying weapons to the rebels. To avoid capture, the captain sank his ship and it went down along with thousands of rifles. At the same time, Owen McNeill discovered the conspiracy and the planned rising. He immediately dispatched messages to the Irish volunteers that all Easter manoeuvres had been cancelled. The rebellion was called off. Easter Sunday, Sunday the 23rd of April. On Easter Sunday, the conspirators met and made a fateful decision. Patrick Pearce, along with James Connolly, Tom Clark, Sean McDermott, Joseph Plunkett, Thomas McDonough and Eamon Sint elected to reschedule the rising for the next day. Most probably knew that such a rising would not succeed with so little organisation and no idea of numbers, but they accepted their fate and went their separate ways to prepare for rebellion. Monday the 24th of April. On Easter Monday, around 1,200 members of the Irish Volunteers and Irish Citizen Army met around Dublin. They then marched to strategic buildings and roads around the city and seized control. The leadership of the Rising occupied the General Post Office in the heart of the city and from its steps Patrick Pearce announced the formation of the Irish Republic. His proclamation was met with an amused indifference. Then back to the main part of it, the story here. The first day of the Rising was marked by confusion as the rebels took control of parts of the city. However, the British Army soon responded with overwhelming force. The rebels used surprise and area knowledge to win a few skirmishes but they were no match for the firepower of the British. While infantry and machine gunners duelled in the streets, long-range artillery blasted the rebel positions to pieces and raging fire spread through the city. By the 29th of April, Patrick Pearce decided to surrender to save Dublin from further harm. Public opinion seemed to favour the British before and during the rising, but it soon shifted in the aftermath. Stories of a mass murder by British troops and unwarranted it executions turned the Irish against the army. The main conspirators were tried in closed court-martial and condemned to death by firing squad and it wouldn't be long before these men were viewed as martyrs. So that's a quick resume of what happened on the Easter Rising. This is a fascinating little book. It's called A Pocket Book of Ireland and I have bought it several times because people who have come, friends of my 
children who've come to visit and pick it up and read it and, and take it home and then I've had to replace it. So it's actually quite interesting little book. I confess that I am very fond of the Republic of Ireland and I enjoy going down. Oh, absolutely. Um, and at the risk of being controversial, I do a lot of work in Newry and if you have a normal car, you probably will save about £15 <laughs> at the moment if you go down. Yeah, I used to teach him yeah. <laughs> outside Newry. It was very handy in those days too. Well, uh, you're, you're talking about how fond you are of uh, Ireland. Would you like to know how Handel came to Dublin? Well, I think the answer has to be yes. yes. <laughs> Whether you want to or not, I'm going to tell you how Handel came to Dublin. And Handel's first, his very famous Messiah was first um, sung or played or performed, performed in Dublin. So this is a quick bit about this. In 1738, a major volcanic eruption on the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia caused serious disruption to weather conditions across Europe. Ireland was particularly badly affected. The Great Frost in 1739 lasted seven weeks. Potatoes and tillage crops such as wheat, oats and barley were destroyed. Streams and rivers that powered the wheels to grind flour froze and couldn't operate and sheep and cattle died. Wooden, bu wooden buildings across the country dried out and many burnt down. One of the, in one of the worst incidents happened in carrick on where between 100 and 150 houses were destroyed by fire. Dublin was plunged into darkness as the extreme cold snuffed out the oil lamps on the streets. Added to all these problems, coal, which was imported from Cumbria uh, and Wales, couldn't be delivered as the water around the ports was frozen. The frost was followed by heavy rains and storms towards the end of the year. In January 1740, there was yet another massive freeze. Seven weeks of black frost ensued, followed by drought when spring rains didn't come. Referred to as the year of the slaughter, this period resulted in people dying in their thousands from hypothermia and diseases such as dysentery, typhus and smallpox, especially in the cities where the poor lived in coal garrets and basements. Starving people flocked to cities like Cork and Dublin hoping for help. Dublin's population rose to 120,000. The numbers incarcerated in the five debtors' prisons swelled with those who had lost businesses, houses and possessions due to fire and inability to pay debts. It was thought between 310 and 480,000 people died out of a population of 2.4 million. So this was the backdrop to Handel's invitation to come to Dublin. Members of the Charitable Music Society for the Release of Imprisoned Debtors in Dublin joined forces with the governors of Mercer's Hospital and the Charitable Infirmary and decided to invite Handel to Dublin. The Duke of Devonshire, William Cavendish, who was the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, issued the invitation. At that time, Handel was down on his uppers in England. He had been sacked as director of the London Opera House in 1734 Audiences in England had turned against Italian opera, considering it too popish. He was in ill health and had massive financial difficulties, so he was only too happy to come to Dublin. He arrived in Dublin in November 1741 and stayed for about 10 months staying in lodgings in Abbey Street, near the corner of Liffey Street, and immediately set about organising his performances. He handled excuse the pun, everything himself, seeking out singers and musicians to perform, checking out venues and advertising tickets and subscriptions. 
he also threw himself with gusto in the hospitable life in Dublin, enjoying all that the city had to offer, sometimes with almost disastrous results. At one stage, he had to be seen urgently by a doctor due to a fit of apoplexy. In a letter to Charles Jennings, the librettist of the Messiah, he praised the politeness of this generous nation, and he noted he was passing my time with honour, profit and pleasure. A series of six concerts was held in the newly opened Neil's Music Hall, Fishamble Street, between December 1741 and February 1742, followed by another series from the end of February to April in 1742. All 600 tickets for each concert sold out quickly. Although Handel's work was well known to Dublin audiences, this was different with the composer himself present. Like a dervish, he conducted the orchestra, played the harpsichord and conducted the choir. This is definitely where Dublin's elite wanted to be and to be seen. Initially, some difficulties arose when Handel asked permission to use the choristers from Christchurch Cathedral and St Patrick's Cathedral. Jonathan Swift, the Dean of St Patrick's Cathedral, was totally averse to his choristers performing a religious work in a secular place. He sent a note to a sub-dean and chapter telling them to punish any of his choristers who performed in that club of fiddlers in Fishamble Street. Fortunately, he relented in time for the performance. Sixteen male and sixteen boy choristers from the combined choirs of the two cathedrals performed. Some of the male choristers were given solo parts, while two female soloists, Susanna Kibber, Contralto, and Christina Maria Alvolgio, soprano, sang the female bits. Handel had set the libretto for the Messiah to music over three weeks in July and August 1741 and brought it with him to Ireland. When Charles Jennings heard that libretto, he that it was to be performed in Ireland, he wrote that it was some mortification to hear that instead of London, that it was being performed in Dublin. There was huge excitement when a date was set for the premiere of this new work. A public rehearsal took place in the Music Hall on the 8th of April 1742 and following this the clamour for tickets reached fever pitch for the real premiere set for the 13th of April. In order to create space for the mus- in the music hall, whose capacity was 600, the male ticket holders were asked to come without their swords and the ladies were asked to leave their dress hoops at home. This fashion sacrifice created an extra 100 places. A one-way system was organised for Fishamble Street. Carriages and sedan chairs were to approach the music hall only by coming down the street towards the river. A room for footmen was hired where they could wait until called for. Three charities benefited from Handel's Messiah. Mercer Street Hospital on Stephen's Green, Stephen Street, the Charitable Infirmary at Inns Quay and the Society for Relieving Prisoners. In all, £400 was collected, which is the equivalent today of about €100,000. This was divided amongst the three charities and, re- and resulted in the release of 142 prisoners from debtors' prison. Handel was delighted with his time in Dublin, and although it took a number of years for the Messiah to become popular in London, his career definitely took an upward turn from that time onwards. The last performance of the Messiah in Ireland in 1742 took place on the 3rd of June, and this time the extra improvements for ticket holders involved a pane of glass being removed from the top of each window in order to keep the room as cool as possible. 
In keeping with this cold and windy atmosphere, Our Lady's Choral Society and a full orchestra performs the Messiah in the open air beside the former arched entrance to Neil's Music Hall, Rain, Hail or Snow, every 13th of April in Fishamble Street in Dublin. And it was such a famous piece of work. And that's how Handel came to Dublin. Very good. And it, you could say it made a man of him. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, the, the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah is just, we were just speaking when we came in. It's so renowned and such a famous mm. speech. Uh, and it's uplifting as yeah, well. It is. And traditionally, who was it you said Heather stood for the performance? Was it the king? It was the king. The king. And uh-huh. now, traditionally, as soon as the Hallelujah Chorus uh-huh. starts, everybody stands for that part. So that uh-huh. must, it's actually very ooh, tingly. For it that. is actually, yes. And uh-huh. you would have sung it with I the have Philharmonic. Sung it quite a few yes. Times, yeah. Yeah. And it sort of brings, <coughs> gives you the hairs in the back of your neck Which when they all stand good. up to sing. Um, I put Anna. my Christmas tree up this year, listening to it on <laughs> <laughs> wrong time of year. Right. <laughs> I know it's a long time. No, well, you know, yeah. it's the wrong time of year, but still. Right, and we take a break now for our song of the week. <laughs> <coughs> Oh, is it more, too much more than a free 
Right. I am going to um, read an article uh, from the Telegraph magazine. Now, it's a few months back. It's a February magazine. And it's called Remote Working. And it says, Tired of the daily grind, Lynn Cassells and Sandra um, Bear quit their jobs, waved goodbye to family and bought an isolated croft in the Highlands. Two cows with heat stroke, poisoned water supplies, escaping sheep and the discovery of a whole new way of life. <clears throat> right. The global surge in gas prices isn't much of a concern on Lynn Breck Croft. The 150-acre farm in the foothills of the Cairngorms isn't even connected to the gas grid and relies solely on wood-burning stove to heat the small log cabin where Lynn Cassells and Sandra Bear live. Similarly, it says an impending war, but obviously the war in Ukraine or Downing Street scandals barely resonate with, the, with them because um, there is no television to watch the evening news. As for COVID, when COVID first struck and the nation was gripped by panic buying, the pair instead took stock of the kitchen garden in which they grew 90% of fruit and vegetables they ate, the well that provides their water supply, their beehives and the freezer filled with cuts of meat from their own livestock and figured they'd get through the pa- pandemic just fine. We've started to become really good at stepping back and getting on with our lives here, explains Lynn, 43. This is the good life, the one we have all dreamt of in the past two years of rolling uh, lockdowns and general dystopia. After falling in love while working at the National Trust six years ago, Lynn and Sandra quit their jobs, left behind family and friends and moved to Lynnbreck Croft, a centuries-old small holding along an ancient drover's road about five miles outside the town of Granton on Spray. Aside from the cabin in which they live and a perimeter fence, the property was largely abandoned. The original croft house was derelict and the stone-built bar cow shed dilapidated with a flapping tin roof. Even so, they knew this was the home Sandra 38 recalls. It's a gut feeling when you know what you want and you know it feels right. <clears throat> Today, the pair are almost entirely self-sufficient and isolated in a landscape of breathtaking beauty. And aside from council tax, electricity, which in lieu of gas heats their water, broadband and a Netflix subscription deep necessary for the long nights of a Highlands winter. There are no bills to pay beyond the running costs of the farm, which they have built up from scratch over the past few years. From their kitchen window, the pair point out the snow-capped peaks of the Cairngorm mountain range. At night, Lynn tells me, there are so many shooting stars, it feels as if they're falling from the sky. On the bright sunny morning, I visit their herd of half a dozen or so highland cattle roam outside munching tussocks of grass, while their twelve rare-breed pigs pootle around their woodland pens. The flock of 70 rare-breed hens currently cooped up in a new built barn because of the national avian flu restrictions, cluck and cotter wall. But to reach this idyllic point has taken years of graft, which has pushed them both to the brink financially and placed enormous strain on their physical and mental health. Lynn has written a new book detailing the roller coaster experience. She also in part wishes to puncture the sort of rural sentimentality held by many urbanites that by escaping to the country, you somehow leave all your cars behind. 
Life in the Highlands is at times a, a hard scrabble existence. The three-bedroom log cabin is cosy, but with few luxuries. Aside from an invariable whisky collection on an upturned cask in the living room, where former Prime Minister David Cameron famously wrote his memoirs in, 20, in a £25,000 gypsy caravan in the Cotswolds at Lynbrick. Um, Lynn notes dryly she wrote much of her book in the plastic polytunnel where they grow their vegetables, and there's some heat at least in there, she says. Every day it's not sunshine and rainbows, and we do have a lot of the same worries other people have. Lynn is quick to point out. You do still worry about money and whether we will have enough some months. But what we have learnt and really start, started to appreciate is the life securities we have here. Both women have no prior connection to the Highlands. Sandra, whose mother is from Fife, grew up in Switzerland, and Lynn was raised in the Northern Ireland town of Lurgan during the Troubles. I was once blown out of my bed with a bomb going off in our local town, she recalls. Lynn left at 19 to study archaeology at Birmingham University and later moved to London where she completed a master's and took up a job as a youth worker. At the time, she was living in a flat in Crouch End and started to feel lonely, paradoxically something she had never felt living in the Highlands. There were seven other flats in the building and I don't re- didn't really know the people living there, she says. And they certainly didn't know who lived outside. Out here, I could call someone who lives 10 miles away, a neighbour. Sandra, meanwhile, says her librarian mother and father, a tech- uh, her librarian mother and her father, a technician, took her and her brother into the countryside to explore the woods near their home. Growing up, I wanted to go into forestry, but I was discouraged a wee bit because it wasn't the done thing for girls at the time. <clears throat> Despite growing up in Switzerland, she had heard her mother's Scottish accent. Instead, after school, she took an apprenticeship in the Central Library uh, in Zurich, and later she combined a cycle of uh, soul-sapping office jobs with regular trips to remote branch in Canada. She trained horses and learned the skills to survive on the edge of civilization. I was desperate for something more outdoorsy, she says, unconventionally living where you don't worry about the consequences and all the security that just go for it. In 2009, Lynn started as an apprentice ranger at the National Trust and Sandra joined the same scheme three years later and was posted to Clevedon, the stately home in Berkshire, formerly the residence of the Astors, where Lynn was already working and the pair fell for one another almost immediately. We realised fairly quickly that we had a really deep and close connection, Lynn says. Lynn was already weary of life at the National Trust. We started to feel the pressure more and more to look at ways in which we could earn money on the site, she says. This is understandable, but it wasn't what made us choose that career. One Sunday evening, as they were struck, stuck in a traffic jam in the rain on the M5, returning from a weekend in Wales, Lynn and Sandra started hatching up an escape plan. Money was an issue from the start. As an apprentice ranger, Sandra's salary was £12,000, while Lynn's was 17000 They lived in a tenanted property with no house of their own to sell, but they were undaunted. They quit their jobs, and at the start of 2015, they moved to the Scottish borders, where they took temporary jobs as tree planters then spent weekends driving north in search of a suitable craft. 
They spotted um, Lindbrecht's listing early on, but ignored it because it was too expensive. However, after several months of traipsing through various uninspiring houses, set in the fields too boggy to farm, they decided to visit. It helped that the notoriously capricious weather was perfect on that day, um, but Lynn says they were both intensely drawn to the wildness of the place. Lynn was, they agreed, a place of raw beauty and endless opportunity. Despite having some savings to fall back on, they were still short of the required money and struggled to secure a mortgage. Family, while supportive, were unable to help. Just as they were about to give up, a friend stepped in and loaned them enough to buy it outright. It wasn't a com- comfortable thing, says Sandra, of being forced to approach their loved ones for money. It was pretty much all-consuming at the time, but I always wondered if it would be a head decision or a heart decision. We came here and got out of the car and just knew this was going to be the right place. The oldest known mention of Lynbrek is on the Great Map of Scotland, a survey of the country undertaken following the Jacobite uprising in 1745. The farm was bought... Um, the farm had belonged to a family of crofters for centuries before they sold it in the late 1990s to another local family who eventually put it up for sale. As incomers, Lynn and Sandra were concerned about how they would be received, not least due to the fact that some locals had been priced out of the area. And you have to earn the badge and do it sensitively, um, Sandra says, by grafting, work hard and showing we are serious about what we are doing. Locals have realised that this isn't just a game for us. The tradition to life as farmers has not been quite so seamless. Early on, the poor accidentally poisoned their well with cleaning chemicals and had to drink bottled water for months until the problem resolved itself. During their brief dalliance with keeping sheep, one of the lambs escaped uh, a fence enclosure on the first evening and then there was a summer when they discovered their highland cattle covered with thick hair at heat stress. Uh, meanwhile, Lynn used to carry um, out their local egg deliveries by bicycle until one evening she failed to prop it up against a wall properly and sent the entire shipment crashing to the floor. The huge startup costs required rebuilding the farm, plus buying tools, livestock and agricultural machinery, including a quad bike, have been the constant thorn in their side. Um, despite receiving grants, they took second jobs in the early, their early years to stay afloat. Sandra taking on freelance land management contracts and Lynn working four days a week for Kerngorm Na- National Park Authority. In 2017, Lynn started to approach burnout. You are so torn because you desperately need to, time to stop and think and plan, but you haven't got time because you need to be earning money, she remembers. She went down to two days a week and then in 2020, just before the pandemic hit, uh, took the plunge and finally quit her job, meaning they were entirely reliant on the farm to keep them afloat. The pair have restored the old bar and a Rizzle farmhouse, which they now rent out, and received a grant to build another barn housing their chickens. Sandra has constructed a mobile chicken unit called the Eggmobile out of an old caravan base she found on Gumtree, and they also set up a butchery unit on site and home skills gleaning, gleaned largely from gruesome YouTube videos. As a girl, I didn't see myself standing at a butchery, as Sandra admits. Lynn has obtained a gun licence and bought a uh, .243 calibre rifle to shoot the roe deer on the land, which devastate young trees. And prior to moving to the farm, both had been vegetarians, but they are now happy to eat meat they lovingly rear. 
They make their money via the weekly Egg Club, a local subscription-based delivery service that has around 35 members, and the monthly Meat Club, which is 50 members. They also sell their own honey, and despite interest from afar, the pair deliberately restrict deliveries to a 15-mile radius. They've also diversified out farming, offering courses on self-sufficiency. These are gruelling days, rising at dawn and working with the animals, tending crops, chopping wood, repairing fences and dealing with unforeseen problems. Currently, Sandra is contemplating repairing the outside composting loo, which has been battered by winter, winter storms. In summer, the working day will sometimes not finish until the chickens have returned to the roost around 11pm. In winter, they sit by the fire in a small log cabin, listen to the winds scouring the landscape. Unlike the crofters of previous generations, they have invested in an electric blanket. In the early years, their mental health suffered with the constant worry and toil, but they believe they have come out of their experience far stronger. The more we took control of our own lives, the easier it has become, Sandra says. Today, they farm entirely organically and have also taken great care to help restore the landscape, which is a mosaic of ancient woodland, grassland and bog. On the day I visited, a flock of red-winged flits through the ancient birch trees, and in summer, cuckoos trill while otters and pine martens slink through the shadows. Pointing to the 17,500 saplings they have planted on the surrounding hillside, Lynn tells me that is her ambition to walk through the new woodland before she dies. There are, of course, sacrifices in pursuing this life, but in the future they hope to be able to employ help on the farm, for now it is just Lynn and Sandra working there. They are unable to leave the farm together because of their animals, so they cannot take a shared holiday. However, as Sandra notes, even when she goes shopping in Inverness for the day, she can't wait to return home. The hardest thing is leaving friends and family behind. Lynn's older sister lives in London, works in publishing, and has two children aged 8 and 10. I ask Lynn if either sibling envies the other. Probably, she concludes, I can't say we'd want to live back in London or do that kind of job, but some nights when it is howling weather up here and the cabin is shaking, I do think it would be nice to be in a little solid stone house somewhere. Lynn and Sandra have no plans for children of their own, but they like the idea of finding a next generation interested in learning and taking over from us so Lynn Breck could live on, Sandra says. The post-pandemic rush to the country has meant the land they are sitting on has rocketed in value, with buyers increasingly looking for small holdings. According to state agent Savills, in the prime residential market, values in Scotland increased by 8.1% between the third quarter of 2020 and the third quarter of 2021. They tell me that a few days before we met, they were discussing whether they would ever be tempted to cash in. They were driving in their truck and recalled when they first arrived at Lynbrook with all their worldly possessions piled inside. We reflected on that and agreed we couldn't imagine leaving, Lynn says. Plus, Aunt Sandra, looking out of the kitchen window across the mountains, they now call home. What else would we do? <coughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Big, um, what would you call it? Brave ladies. Indeed, indeed. Well, I've got an interesting little bit here. <coughs> Uh, from the Health and <coughs> Lifestyle column in Ireland's own, Making Greener Food Choices. And that's by Alexandra Dobbs, BSc, uh, with a diploma in Nutrition and Diet. Greener food choices? Is she writing about eating by colour? No. This time she's talking about making green food choices for the planet. The news about the state of the planet is not good. Some say we're living in the 
Anthropocene. <laughs> A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-C-E-N-E. The time where humans have taken over the planet. Wild animals and plants are going extinct every day. Ecosystems are collapsing around us. We are farming and eating in a very unsustainable way. These are global issues that will require all of us to pull together for a better tomorrow. The fresh food we see in our supermarket shelves has often travelled thousands of miles to get to that shelf. Just take a look at the label the next time you go to the shop. Grapes from South Africa, pears from Argentina, wine from New Zealand and beans from Kenya. This comes at a huge cost to our environment. The other side of the coin is that while we are eating globally produced foods, we are driving our own indigenous food production here in Ireland to extinction. However, there is hope, as we can all make a difference. So how can we make greener food choices that lead to us eating a great diet whilst also saving the planet? Here are some ideas most of us can put into practice without too much effort. Spend local. Shop local. Visit your local greengrocer, butcher, market and farm shop, as these shops tend to sell more locally sourced foods in supermarkets. You are also supporting your own community more effectively. You also keep in touch with your local community, one thing we have all learned to appreciate more during COVID. We are spoilt for quality meats in Ireland. Our meat production is largely extensive. Livestock is finished on grass largely. This produces high quality meat and is also a less environmentally unsustainable way of farming. Organically grown meat is also a lot less carbon intensive. I'm not advocating going vegetarian, but you can reduce your carbon footprint by having even one vegetarian meal per week. I love meat and well-produced meat you can get in your local butchers. Uh, We have taken on this challenge ourselves in the family, and it's actually quite easy to produce a tasty vegetarian meal once a week. Think vegetarian pasta salad, veggie pizza veggie curry, etc. If you want to go all out on reducing your food miles, try your green hands and grow some of your own vegetables. Luckily, Ireland has a super climate for growing delicious vegetables easily. I always say, if I can grow it, you can too. I don't have particularly green hands, but even in my garden, I successfully grow potatoes, carrots, courgettes, sweet peas, green beans, cabbages and spinach with minimal effort. Love raspberries? Plant berry shrubs. Ireland's climate is ideal for many wonderful berries that are delicious and very healthy, but expensive to buy in the supermarkets. Well, I can and tell you, I have several friends who are vegetarian, and none of them are blessed with good health. Oh, yes. And <laughs> came first. Hmm? The vegetarianism or the good health? Oh, that's it. Uh, yeah. Well, mm. Ruth grows a lot of her own veg, don't you, Ruth? Well, I try. Uh-huh. My fingers aren't that great. <laughs> but we'll give it a go. But, you know, it's great to hear about all the different ways where we can be better with what we eat or we can produce our own and we have all of these options. But for some people, they don't have much option. And we know that the reliance on food banks is really increasing um, over the last few years. And with the cost of living increasing now, oil, gas... Um, fuel people just are in a very difficult position and the food banks become more and more important and supporting the local food bank is 
important to me and um, we have done it quite a, a lot over the last little while and it, it's not difficult actually to um, gather up some stuff for a food bank and the food bank actually gives you a list of things that they need to have which means you can really target it to what's needed rather than um, a load of tins of beans. But a tin of beans donated to a food bank with a tale to tell about the cost of living crisis is an article that's in um, iMagazine and I picked this up um, online. Food bank use has escalated in recent years with the pandemic and spiralling living costs, pushing some families into crisis for the first time. I followed the journey of a donated can of beans to find out about the human stories of hunger. Pushing her trolley around the supermarket, the female shopper pauses at the bean aisle and throws an extra can into her food hall, almost as an afterthought. After paying for her shopping, she approaches a large green plastic tub near the front of the store, emblazoned with the words, Food Bank Collection Point, and carefully places the tin of beans, along with a number of other food items, inside. The donated can of beans begins its journey at the Tesco's Extra in Walkden, Greater Manchester, one of four supermarkets in the area with collection points where Farnworth and Cursley Food Bank volunteers regularly collect food donated by kind-hearted shoppers. And of course, this is something that's replicated all over the, the country and here in Craigavon. Shoppers can buy extra items for donation while they're doing their own food shop in-store, explains Elaine Fox, community champion at Tesco's. Or they can bring in food from home they don't want to use themselves or buy food items from a different shop. Anyone can bring in food from anywhere and put it into one of the tubs, knowing it will go to someone in need. It's really overwhelming how much people donate to help others who are in crisis. I spent a day with the Well Food Bank in Farnworth Bolton and followed the journey of a single can of beans from the moment of donation to when it finds itself in a food parcel handed to someone facing desperation, knowing they will get to eat that day. Financial difficulties have been exacerbated for many in recent years with the coronavirus pandemic, cuts to universal credit and rising food and energy bills taking their toll on families who were only just managing, culminating in them doing something they had never imagined, using a food bank to ensure they don't go hungry. Now the UK's rate of inflation has jumped to a 30-year high of 5.4%, may even be higher now, there are concerns the cost of living crisis will deepen further, pitchforking more people into poverty and through the doors of a food bank for the very first time. The can of beans sits nestled among a variety of donated foods, with everything from tins of soup to packets of biscuits, tubs of chocolates and toilet rolls. Deftly picking up the beans can, James Colleen, warehouse manager for Farnworth and Kersley Food Bank, piles of donated food into pallets and together with other volunteers, pushes shopping trolleys of goods to load into their van. We collect from the supermarket once or twice a week, says James. If the tubs are getting full or overflowing, the store sends us a text or calls us and we arrange an extra collection. James has been a volunteer warehouse manager for more than four years and though he desperately wants to help those in need, he says, I wish we didn't need to do it. I wish food banks weren't needed in this country and there weren't people in these circumstances struggling so much. But there's so many different reasons why people need to use food banks and it's a good job there's somewhere for them to go. The food bank warehouse is a 10 minute drive away and the van pulls up outside so the volunteers can unload their latest bounty ready to weigh and organise. 
Inside the warehouse is like an Aladdin's cave of food and essentials, with rows upon rows of tinned goods from soups, potatoes, tomatoes, meat and fish to baby food and pet supplies. Each variety of food has its own section with everything neatly organised and best before order so items can be rotated by the earliest dates when taken to food banks. The can of beans is plucked from among the donations and takes its place on a shelf in the beans section. The warehouse supplies food to three food banks in the Bolton area as well as donating to other charities in need. Holding a form in her hand, warehouse volunteer Alison Thornton ticks off what is needed by the Well Food Bank in Farnworth one of the Trussell Trust networks of food banks. The required amount for each food item is loaded into the van, ready to stock up their cupboards. I went to the well earlier to check their cupboards and made a shopping list of stock they were running low on, she explains. We top things up on a daily basis. A hand reaches out and plucks the can of beans as part of the tins required for the well food bank and it is loaded into the back of the van to embark on the next stint of its journey. Less than half a mile away, the Well Food Bank provides emergency food on production of a voucher from a referral agency. It runs a job club and has benefits and welfare advisors on hand to help people. We are seeing lots of people who are really in crisis situations, who are needing the food bank, and many of them are individuals who would not ordinarily have come to a food bank, Mark Whittington, manager of Barnworth and Carsley Food Bank, tells us. We are definitely seeing a lot more families People who are just about managing are now struggling with the increase in utility bills and rising price of food. All it takes is an unexpected bill and it can push people over the edge. We are seeing people in all different circumstances coming through our doors, including those who are working but still struggling. We have seen teachers and nurses having to use the food bank. For many, this is their last hope in terms of getting some food. A gauntlet of emotions is experienced by those coming to the food bank, from relief and gratitude to embarrassment and shame at feeling they have no choice but to accept an emergency food parcel. People have experienced a lot of emotion, even before coming here, explains Mark. A lot, particularly those coming for the first time, will say, I'm ashamed, I feel embarrassed, I never thought I'd have to come to a place like this. We are frequently having people coming in who are in tears or on the verge of tears. We always try to make people feel comfortable, reassure them and tell them we're here for them. Shame and embarrassment at their circumstances necessitating a visit to a food bank was a common theme among the people we spoke to. While many were happy to share their stories and experiences, most were reluctant to reveal their names or be photographed. One mum of six children ranging from 2 to 13 told us she felt overwhelmed and emotional at being given bags of food. This means the world to us, she says. When the kids go are hungry and there's no food in the house, it's awful. She explains they've been struggling since Christmas Eve after she and her partner had their benefits abruptly stopped. We've been going without food ourselves just so the kids can eat. We often have to choose between food and heating and that's a terrible choice to have to make. Around half of all referrals to the food bank are people who have encountered cuts to benefits or are waiting five weeks for their first universal credit payment, says Mark. But increasingly they are seeing people who are working but still struggling, particularly since the pandemic. Those on zero-hour contracts have seen their hours slashed, while many self-employed people have endured work drying up or disappearing for good. Welling up with tears, one father of four describes how he is working in a pizza shop and had plenty of hours during peak season, 
But when January arrived, his hours were cut to his three-hour contract, leaving him struggling to pay his bills and feed his family. I've applied for universal credit, but have to wait for five weeks, he says. But I still have to pay rent, council tax bills and buy food for my family, and I can't do it. Facing an inner battle of accepting food he hasn't paid for, despite the reassurance of food bank volunteers to take more, he leaves with a fraction of what he is entitled to. The food bank provides a minimum of three days of nutritionally balanced tinned and dried food. Volunteers strive to meet individual needs and package parcels for all eventualities. Some people only have a kettle or access to a microwave, especially if they're sofa surfing, says Ros Bray, a retired primary school teacher who's been volunteering at the food bank for more than five years. We do cold packs for them, cereal, beans, sweet corn, tuna and cooked meat, such as ham and corned beef, things that can be eaten without needing heating up. We also provide tin openers and disposable cutlery to some people who have suddenly been moved into emergency accommodation and have nothing. Picking up the can of beans from the cupboard, Ros drops it into a food parcel and tells us how she wanted to carry on helping communities after retiring as a primary school teacher. I saw a lot of hunger in the classroom, she says. Many children came in needing their milk straight away as they hadn't had any breakfast. And for some pupils, the school meal was the only meal they had in a day. A lot of people who come to the food bank have found themselves in a situation where they have to make difficult choices, pay the rent or feed the kids. We have families in work who can't make ends meet and are forever in the position where they have to weigh one thing against another and that must be dreadfully depressing. Food bank workers hear heartbreaking tales. Mark says, as a nation we need to have more compassion for people who are struggling and realise many have been hit by situations and circumstances outside their control. One 60-year-old man says he was very frugal and managed to keep on top of bills but life threw him a curveball when his mum and dad died within a month of each other and he incurred debts with funeral costs. My parents have had some savings and once they're released I should be able to pay off the debts, he explains. But it's all tied up with solicitors and I've maxed my overdraft and taken out a personal loan. Things got to the stage where me and my partner had no money or food. His voice breaking with emotion, tears rolling down his cheeks as he adds, the first time I came to the food bank I felt humiliated. Everyone was so kind, which made me feel worse. I feel guilty taking stuff I've not paid for, and I keep thinking there are people worse off than me living on the streets. Each time I come to the food bank, I hoped I'd never have to do it again, but at the same time it's nice getting home and knowing you have food to eat. Lee Miles describes how his life suddenly changed when he lost family members, including his mum, brother and niece within a short space of time. I'm dyslexic and can't read or write and relied on my mum a lot, he says, I felt lost when she died. Lee worked in, a, in the building trade for 30 years, but when the firm he was working for stopped trading after the owner retired, he struggled to find fresh employment. To go for another job, I need to go online, but being dyslexic, I struggle without my mum to help me. Everything is on computers, which makes life really hard for me. I was referred to the food bank when someone at the doctors realised I was struggling. There were some days I didn't eat at all, but I always tried to make sure my dog was fed before me. I feel guilty coming to the food bank as I worry there might be someone who needs it more than me. The food bag containing the can of beans reaches the end of its journey as is handed to the food parcel of Vladimir Tanichi, who came to the UK from the Czech Republic in 2009. He t- says he has no money or job as he was working for a friend, but the work ended as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. 
He was referred to the food bank by the Salvation Army and says his eyes have been truly open to people's kindness. I've been very hungry, he says. Sometimes I go to Asda and buy a tin of beans for 13p. If you go later on at night, you can get some food cheap. Placing his hand on his heart to articulate his emotion, Vladimir says, I was struggling, but these people, good people, they help me, give me food. The food makes me very happy. I will be eating and not going hungry. So there's a number of stories of very ordinary people from very different walks of life who struggle to eat. And we hear that so often. It's food or is it heat? Feed the kids, not the adults. Feed the dog. Feed the dog. Not myself. (laughs) And um, so next time you're out shopping and um, you remember maybe stick a tin of beans or something into that food bank tub at the front of the the shop and... um, be sure that somebody is um, very grateful for your for your donation. Right on a more cheerful note, uh, <laughs> I was coming home from Tullymore Forest Park recently. I, I have a ticket and I go quite a lot. Brought a friend who was very pleased with it, and when out of nowhere he says, "You know, he used to go to a boxing club in Rathfriesland, and he says, you know, look how far I walked home, because his house is at Cabra, and it's not. Mm-hmm. In be- I don't know, it's basically halfway between Castlewell and then Rathfriesland. He says, you know, I really did walk. You know, as a 13-year-old, I really did. It was a very long walk home. I must have been keen. And I know someone who, again, you're going back, uh, um, what, <laughs> probably 35 years ago, and he lived in Blairy, had to go to the coach in Bambridge, and if his parents wouldn't bring him, he he, wa- he said he was walking, and they didn't want him walking, and they brought him. <laughs> so we've got a poem here from uh, Martin Grimley, our poor down poet, uh, who is delighted that we're reading his, I shouldn't call it his stuff, his um, creations <laughs> on the talking newspaper. He says it's encouraging him to write more. So this one is, right, poor down. Bet many of you jumped the train to Lurgan, hid in the toilet, ticket collector waiting till you came out. Going to Ashburn or Stables during the troubles it was, the last train back to Portadown was 11.30pm. How many of us walked home from there, walked the railway lines, walked the seven roundabouts, got to the front door, mum and dad waiting on you when you got in, middle stair creaked and dad knew if you were drunk or late. <laughs> He came out of the bedroom, look at you, can nearly get up the stairs. Uh, Where were you to this time? Excuses we made. I remember my dad saying, I'll see you in the morning, explain where I was. We've all done it, trying to sneak in. (laughs) Then red skies in the early morning, grey red clouds drifting on the gentle breeze. The silence is deaf in the quietness, standing in awe, watching from the window. Nesting birds signal the dawn, darting, catching the worm, taking turns to feed the young, flickering rays of sunlight, touching, reflecting of the windows of glass, waving twigs of fingers of the branches, skyward, paying homage to the wondrous sun, daffodil sea of yellow under the mighty oak tree, and I thought, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning, then I seen a magpie, then two on my windowsill, laughing, flying away. Time to get up, red skies in the early morning. 
And one more. I smiled today, early morning, red sun, breaking on the horizon, clouds deciding, catching a breeze, making way, disappearing, rays beaming, clouds turn grey red. Birds started to sing, waiting on last night's bread. The greedy seagull circling overhead, waiting its chance. Smart wee robin waits on the pigeon through the crumbs in the air, bobbing in and out. I remembered back when I course fished on the river ban, Windsor Foods, Dog Food Factory, Master McGrath, famous Lurgan Greyhound. My dad was a foreman there. He told me the times when they flushed the pipes of scraped meat, <laughs> fish going mad, uh, net full, speedboats cruising slowly down, wake of the bow splashing on the bank, water lilies flowering yellow, swaying, dragonfly clinging on, drying the wings, wiping the eyes like before takeoff, tilting a drink, dipped in the river, ban, ban river, I smile today. Early red morning sun, and I can't tell you, we've done one. <laughs> my confession: we've done one hour twenty minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on that note, it's goodbye from me, John Harness. <laughs> good night, and happy Easter, and a whole lot of Easter eggs and all the rest of it. <laughs> And we'll leave you with David Essex. Hurrah. <laughs> the ladies are very happy. <laughs>